From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Khalil Bendib is away. On Saturday, May 12th, Iraq held its parliamentary elections to select the 329 members of the body, which will serve as the basis for establishing a new government. While nearly 7,000 candidates and more than 200 parties were competing for votes, only 44% of eligible voters cast their ballots in these elections. A notably low figure given that no election since the U.S.-British invasion of 2003 had had a turnout below 60%. This week, we spend the hour focusing on the primary concerns of Iraqi citizens in the run-up to the election and on the main protagonists contending for power in these elections. What do the election results represent? What does the outcome mean to regional and international actors? To answer these questions, Vomina's Shahram Agamir spoke with Lolowa al-Rashid, who has been conducting research on Iraq and the Gulf region for the past 20 years. She argues that the elections have highlighted the perilously wide gap between rulers and the ruled in Iraq, reflected by a massive popular rejection of the post-Bath political order. It's the fourth legislative election since 2006. The vote itself went uh, quite smoothly, except in the disputed uh, city of Kirkuk. There were allegations of fraud until this very moment. Arabs and Turkmens are contesting the results and accusing the major Kurdish parties of massive fraud. Uh, the same happens in Ambar and in Ninawa. But the international community and the major Iraqi political parties consider that the elections went quite well and that the results are fair, beyond the fact that it was the fourth uh, successful vote since the transfer of sovereignty to the Iraqis by the American in 2005-2006. It had another important symbolic dimension because it was the first election after the defeat of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq and after the destruction of the caliphate in Mosul. It is in itself an achievement and here let's not under value the importance of this vote. There was quite a high degree of unpredictability about the results. I mean, unlike what's going on in the region, whereby you have elections, highly predictable elections, uh, such as in Egypt. So it is in a region that is today characterized by a reversal towards authoritarianism. Iraq is an exception, maybe possibly with Iraq and Tunisia are exceptions. I mean, maybe it was too much pluralistic. I mean, it ended up producing a very difficult political landscape with uh, no major winner, after all. I mean, of course, the Sadrist movement was widely perceived, rightly so, as the winner. But you have to take to analyze this against the backdrop of massive, massive, massive abstention, massive boycott of the election, very, very low turnout, particularly in Baghdad, where two-thirds of the voters didn't uh, cast a ballot. And at the level of the entire country, the turnout was as low as 54%. And again, you have to analyze the result of this election against the backdrop of massive, massive popular anger at the political system that was put in place by the American after 2003. There were nearly 7,000 candidates and more than 200 parties in the parliamentary right. elections. Who were the main protagonists contending for power 
And now that the official results have been announced, is it easy to say who the winners and losers are? I think what was important about this election more than the previous ones was the fact that it was a political contest among Shia groups, among Shia political parties and factions for the leadership of Iraq. The Kurds and the Sunnis were sidelined. They have to participate in the government because this is the political configuration in Iraq. The electoral law in Iraq produces no political majority. It embodies the fragmentation of the political landscape. But what happened was that the context was clearly from the beginning a contest among political parties and factions and leaders for the leadership, for the premiership, I would say. And this is exactly what the results have embodied. It was a competition among different visions of what Iraq should be, what Iraqi identity is about, what kind of foreign relations should Iraq have with its regional environment and beyond that with the international community, with the U.S. and the West. So this is what the elections were about, producing a new vision, if possible, a new Shiite vision for the Iraqi society and state. Are we going to have a, an Iraq dominated by orthodox Islamist groups, Islamist visions of statehood, of nationhood? Or are we going to have a new formula, a new Iraq that is still Shiite, but that is different from what we have from the Iranian model, different from the classical model that we have seen since 2003 to 2005, that is an Iraq ruled by moderate Islamist parties, Shiite Islamist party that is Hizb al-Dawa, the two prime minister who ruled Iraq since 2006 came all from the same political party that is the Dawa party, the Dawa, the Islamic call party. In the spring of 2016, there were massive protests to force Prime Minister Abedi to carry out a major overhaul of his corrupt government. In February 2017, thousands of people protested in Iraq, demanding a complete overhaul of the Electoral Commission. And force was used to prevent them from storming the Green Zone. Given socioeconomic and regional stratifications in the country, there is not probably a simple answer to this question. But what were some of the main concerns and grievances of the population with respect to the state of economy, provision of services by the state, and the issue of governance as a whole in Iraq, when Iraq was actually holding its parliamentary elections. There were several attempts to change the system, to change the course of event in Iraq. The Arab Spring had an impact on Iraq. It had an impact because before the wave of uh, popular protests that you're referring to, which started in 2016, Iraq witnessed a previous uh, wave of popular protests. And I would say this has never ceased since 2003. It did coalesce in the immediate aftermath of the Arab Spring. Thousands of uh, demonstrators gathered in, in Baghdad and in Basra, the two major uh, cities in Iraq. They were asking for immediate reforms of the system. They were asking for decent public services. Electricity is an, was an issue and is still an issue in Iraq. They were asking for the end of corruption, a fight against corruption. Uh, they were asking for accountability. 
their demands and grievances were similar to demands and grievances voiced elsewhere in the Arab world during the Arab Spring. Iraq was no exception. Although Iraq was considered as a, since the regime change imposed by the Americans, Iraq was considered as a democratic system with elections, with an elected uh, government, with a strong electoral legitimacy. Yet Iraq, the system produced by the American and put in place by the American, failed to produce a legitimate political system in terms of public services, in terms of good governance, in terms of accountability of the rulers, in terms of uh, giving the country a direction, basically. Where is Iraq heading to? Is it going to be the business as usual with a corrupt political class, with no political vision, no concern about political development whatsoever, just obsessed by its own survival? So this was what triggered the popular demonstration in 2011. Unfortunately, it became entangled with the Syrian conflict. It became sectarianized immediately. Nouri al-Maliki was uh, prime minister at that time. He resorted to the same old rhetoric of the fight against Ba'athi and terrorists and jihadists. And again, Maliki resorted, like his Arab counterparts, he resorted to brutal repression to suppress the movement. And at that time, the religious clergy, uh, headed by uh, Ayatollah Sistani, and I would say the religious establishment was against the popular movement and they called the demonstrators to allow the government more time to deliver, uh, to reform the system and change the system. Unlike what happened in 2016, I think the fact that one third of the country was lost to Daesh was a shock and was, was a blow to the political establishment. Was and Daesh, Daesh, you're referring to the Islamic State ISIS, Islamic uh, just to be State, clear. Yeah, yes. to ISIS. It dealt a severe blow to the whole political entity. And therefore, it allowed the popular movement to express itself in a way that appealed to more people in 2016. This led to the extension of the movement uh, to Basra. Of course, it was mainly a Shiite movement. I'm not saying those grievances are not uh, shared by Sunni and Kurds. And in fact, there was some kind of intifada or upheaval in Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, where demonstrators were equally angered at the corruption of the system, at the dire state of public services and unaccountability, basically. Their anger was directed at the two major political Kurdish parties, which have been sharing power since the beginning of the 1990s, even before 2003. I mean, they were against this authoritarian and corrupt bipartisan system. As you mentioned, the turnout in Iraq's parliamentary election was low, with only 44% of eligible voters casting their ballots. Voters in Baghdad and other places reportedly complained that most candidates in these elections belong to the same group of elites, as they call them. Uh, no election since the U.S.-British invasion of 2003 had had a turnout below 60%. What does this low turnout tell us in terms of how the voters viewed this election? Well, it tells us about the widening gap between the political elites and the population. And this is a very dangerous phenomenon. You mentioned the storming of the Green Zone in 2017 by followers of Muqtada Sadr. Uh, this is a very dangerous pattern. It was out of a perception that the system cannot be reformed by those who are in power. There need to be a radical uh, transformation of the system. So Muqtada Sadr has been threatening of taking 
matters into his hands and just forcing the system to transform itself. So Muqtada has been ambiguous about it. He plays on both uh, repertoires. He threatens of storming the grain zone while at the same time being himself very much part of the political establishment and part of this political game that he criticizes and he blames uh, for the poor state of public services and governance in the country. To me, the most dangerous pattern that comes clearly from this election is this widening gap between elites and the population. If nothing changes, if there's no real reform of the system, this could uh, end up producing other attempts to change the system in a more brutal and more radical way. This will bring back street politics in Iraq and you will see more and more of popular manifestations of rage and uh, anger at the system. There was an extensive campaign on Iraqi social media to boycott the parliamentary elections. Uh, The most popular hashtags include ones that say things like, I'm not voting or boycott the elections. Can you talk about this boycott campaign run by activists and its efficacy, its effectiveness? Interestingly, the activists who run this campaign to boycott the election uh, and who are quite active in the social media, Facebook is very popular in Iraq. I mean, there's another sort of virtual public sphere that is on Facebook. So there were calls uh, from um, parts of the so-called civil movements or the Tayyar al-Madani. Interestingly, this Tayyar madani this civil movement split into two. Half of it went with the Sadrists and entered into an electoral coalition with the Sadrists. This is Muqtada al-Sadr's bloc. Yes, this is Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr movement, or uh, what came to be known as the Sa'irun coalition. And the other half was quite skeptical about this alliance between the civil activists and what is, at the end of the day, an Islamist movement or an Islamist group. So those who were against this alliance uh, called for a boycott. And this gathered momentum, I would say, mainly in Baghdad. The turnout in Baghdad was uh, the lowest of the whole country. 20%, roughly. Yes. It is a very ambiguous and very um, uncertain alliance between the civil movement, the Tayyar al-Madani, and the Sadris. At the beginning, it was a tactical alliance. The civil movement, while demonstrating in, uh, in Baghdad, in the center of Baghdad, in Tahrir Square in Baghdad, needed the protection. They needed to be protected against eventual intimidation by the political establishment and by popular mobilization uh, militias. So they allied themselves to Muqtada Sadr and to his huge reservoir of followers, basically to be protected, avoid being coerced by others. And in allying himself to the civil um, society, to civil society activists, Muqtada Sadr uh, wanted to be perceived as a political movement which has matured, which has developed a clear vision of what Iraq should look like, of uh, a movement which has evolved from its initial uh, very, very orthodox Islamic vision of Iraqi society. So it was a tactical alliance. It remains to be seen whether this alliance will survive the the formation of the government. But again, let's here precise that Muqtada obtained 54 or 55 seats. Out of these seats, very limited were um, won by uh, civil society activists and Iraqi Communist Party leaders, those who, who allied themselves to Muqtada. But again, when the protests started, In 2011, as well as in 2016, they were initiated by 
journalists, intellectuals, civil society activists, Facebook activists, basically young, urban, educated, sort of middle class Iraqis. And most likely seculars. Let's say <laughs> people who are calling for some kind of separation between religion and the state, which was theorized and conceptualized a dawla madaniya, a civil state. Muqtada has been pushing for another, yet another form of separation between state and religion that is dawla wataniya, a national state. But as, again, I mean, these concepts are very fluid, very ambiguous, and have no sort of practical or concrete content in oh. terms of how do we run the state? How do we divide power between the components of Iraqi society? How do you restore electricity? I mean, this is basically the main, the main issue. How do you restore the authority of the state? How do you remonopolize violence into the hands of the state or its, its legitimate representatives? How do you provide goods to the people? And how do you gain their respect, basically, in terms of fighting the corruption or ending the corruption or diminishing the levels of corruption that have pushed the country into this deadlock. Muqtada al-Sadr, he has been called the winner of the 2018 parliamentary elections. You mentioned something about the ambiguity associated with his, what his agenda may be and his platform may be. What can you tell us about his background and his social base? Muqtada al-Sadr is a young Shiite clerk who is the son of the late Ayatollah Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, a very popular religious figure who was assassinated in 1999 by Saddam's regime and who attempted in the 1990s to, I would say, to Islamize the Shia of Iraq and to politicize their identity. Basically, he used the framework of the so-called Campaign for Faith, which was launched by Saddam Hussein after his, his defeat in Kuwait. Saddam resorted to religion in the 1990s to gain some kind of legitimacy. He was, after all, discredited by his withdrawal from Kuwait. He was discredited because of his isolation, because of the imposition of harsh economic sanctions on Iraq. He was discredited by the massive impoverishment of the Iraqi population due to the effects of the economic sanctions. So within this context, Saddam Hussein allowed religion to gain more importance within Iraqi society. And this triggered on both sides, on the Sunni and on the Shiite side, the rise of religious movements within Iraqi society. Of course, this was under the surface. It wasn't very obvious, particularly it wasn't really known to the outside world. And it was definitely not known to the Americans and the British who invaded Iraq in 2003. And therefore, when in 2003, the only movements that were able to mobilize people inside Iraq were religious movements, whether Sunni or Shia. And Muqtada al-Sadr inherited this, the popularity of his, father, of his late father, Ayatollah Muhammad al-Sadiq al-Sadr, and he surprised the world in 2003 by uh, being able to mobilize thousands, if not millions, of Iraqi in the streets. The Sadrist movement is the product of the 1990s in Iraq. He is the product of a politicization of Iraqi Shiism, 
that is homegrown. It had nothing to do with Iran. It wasn't produced by Iranian interferences or Iranian political engineering, similar to what happened in Lebanon, for instance, in, uh, in the beginning of the 1980s. It was homegrown. It had a very strong Iraqi nationalist legitimacy. And it had another characteristic that is hostility to the West. Uh, hostility to the U.S., who were perceived in the 1990s in Iraq as being uh, responsible for the impoverishment of the of the Iraqis, are being those who imposed sanctions on Iraq, those who accused Iraq uh, of having uh, weapons of mass destruction. So there was this hostility against the West. And Muqtada al-Sadr, after 2003, for two years, he was as dangerous as the Sunni insurgents to American troops. And actually, he posed a big security problem to the Americans when he called on his followers to take up arms against foreign occupation. And at some point, the Sadrists sided with the Sunni insurgents. In Fallujah, for example, in 2003 and 2004, there were some Sadrist elements fighting alongside the Sunnis. So there's this very strong anti-imperialist, let's say, dimension. And the other dimension is a homegrown movement. A homegrown movement who would clash with not only the Americans, but also with the, the political establishment made of exiled who returned with the Americans and whom the Americans entrusted with power after 2003. Iraq is experiencing a deepening poverty crisis. More than 30% of the population in oil-rich southern provinces and 15% of Baghdad residents uh, live in poverty. And poverty rates in the provinces that had been previously captured by Daesh or ISIS is estimated to be more than 45%. Muqtada al-Sadr has been described as a maverick leader with an appeal to the urban poor. Since 2003, Muqtada al-Sadr's movement has been providing healthcare services, food and clean water in many Iraq's poor districts, and especially in Sadr City. I know you have been to Iraq recently. Beyond the statistics, how does the poverty and unemployment manifest itself in Iraq? Also tell us how it might have impacted the election. Well, there's a massive youth unemployment in Iraq. And this is in a country where demographic growth is very high. It is one of the highest in the region. Demographic growth in Iraq is, is extremely high. So you have massive youth unemployment. I mean, you have massive rural poverty. There are no jobs. And this unemployment explains the success of the popular mobilization forces because it is providing jobs. It is creating jobs. And I would say that the only sector that is creating jobs in Iraq is the security sector. The Iraqi economy is an oil economy uh, which produces nothing but oil exports. What was left of the Iraqi industrial sector was gradually destroyed since 2003 because of the corruption of the system, uh, because of uh, lack of investment, because of, because of lack of any political vision in terms of development of what Iraqi economy needs to be more effective to create jobs. There was basically total uh, reliance on oil exports and on oil handouts, basically. The size of the civil service in Iraq has been multiplied by three since 2003. This is the only way to create jobs in Iraq because you have no productive economy, you have no, uh, no industry. Uh, what's left of the agricultural sector is heavily impaired by uh, 
lack of water resources, by uh, political violence in the rural areas, particularly in the in the Sunni areas in the north, for example, in uh, in the region of Mosul, which is one of the major uh, agricultural region of Iraq. So violence and corruption have destroyed the economic basis of Iraq. Uh, the only functioning sector was oil and remains the oil sector. But this doesn't create jobs. This doesn't create jobs for the unemployed youth, those who are in Southern city, as you said, those who provide all radical movements, whether Sunni or Shiite, with thousands of, uh, of followers and thousands of young men willing to take up arms to make a living, basically, not out of ideology or radicalization, but just because this is the only way for them to make a living in an economy which has uh, no productive basis, which has no other ways to absorb them. Iraq has been ranked among the world's most corrupt countries. The Parliamentary Transparency Commission in Iraq says because of government corruption, $320 billion cannot be accounted for in the past 15 years. Sairun, the alliance of Sadrists and Iraq's Communist Party, in its election campaign, used a rhetoric that targeted this rampant corruption and the patronage system that you mentioned kind of manifests itself in terms of inflating the number of civil service employees hired by the state. Can you talk about the extent of these problems in Iraq? Sa'irun and the Muqtada Sadr's coalition, they are part of the system. I mean, it doesn't mean that they are less corrupt than others. After all, they had ministers in Abadi's government. Uh, they were part of the previous governments and they uh, they were in control of important ministries. So they were part of, I would say, the corruption. But again, I mean, because of the huge popularity of Muqtada Sadr, they were perceived as being above corruption. And this caused a problem for Muqtada himself because at times he was punished punishing his own representatives and his own politicians. At some point, he went so far as to imprison one of his prominent parliamentarians, that is Baha al-Araji, who was Sadr's MP. He was detained in Najaf, in Muqtada Sadr's headquarters, under charges of, of corruption. So again, th- this corruption is part of the system that was put in place in 2003 by the Americans. If you have a coalition government which allocates shares of power and resources between the major political players, you will end up having a corrupt system. There's no other way. And you end up having a a corrupt political establishment, which close ranks in defense of the status quo. This is what we have witnessed since 2003. No one is willing to, to reform the system because a serious reform of the system would put an end to their privileges and to their shares of the oil rent, of the huge oil rent, and it will shake the foundation of their political um, patronage and clientelistic system. They will lose their constituency. If they can't afford to have access to the oil rent, they will lose what's left of their political legitimacy and of, they will lose their patronage networks within Iraqi society. And in terms of provision of services by the state, Baghdad is a microcosm for the problems faced by the rest of the country. Uh, most neighborhoods in the Sadr city have no water but, or electricity, while sewage runs down the streets. Right. This is the case in parts of Sadr city and in, in other parts of Baghdad. But I would say that the situation in Baghdad is much, much better than the situation in the southern governorates, and particularly in the city of Basra, where nothing has been done in terms of reconstruction since 2003. And this is where 
Iraqi oil wealth lies. And this is a city that feels deprived of its wealth by corrupt politicians in Baghdad. And the situation there is quite explosive, I would say. Heat levels in Iraq are um, going up, and Basra has witnessed since 2003 waves of demonstrations in the summer because of the heat and because of lack of electricity, lack of, of access to water. And this is a trend that has been going on for the last 15 years, basically people demonstrating against the failure of the state and its local representatives to deliver the most basic public services and public goods. And let's not talk about the situation in the Sunni liberated regions, particularly in in Mosul, where you have half Mosul city that is completely destroyed. And you have several hundreds of thousands of Mosul inhabitants who live in refugee camps within their own governorate. I'm wondering how much of this Muqtada al-Sadr's bloc success in this election can be attributed to the general discontent over economic issues and the issues of corruption, social patronage, political patronage, and uh, things of that nature. Given the fact that nearly half of Baghdad population lives in Sadr city, stronghold of uh, Muqtada al-Sadr and his uh, Sadrist movement, can Muqtada al-Sadr's success in these elections be attributed also to a very low turnout, 20% in Baghdad area, as you mentioned? Or do you think his social base has actually expanded since the previous election due to disaffection and discontent on the part of the general public? Well, I would attribute, first of all, the success of Muqtada al-Sadr to the massive boycott of the election and to the very uh, low turnout, particularly in Baghdad. The Sadrist movement managed to mobilize their troops. They made sure that people voted. So there was a massive mobilization of their own constituency. Their constituency increased a lot. I wouldn't say that. The size of, of Muqtada Sadr's followers did increase a little bit, but this is mainly due to the massive mobilization of their uh, voters, not to an increase beyond their, I would say, natural constituency that is the most impoverished neighborhoods in Baghdad, Sadr city, of course, and the most impoverished regions of Iraq, i.e. the southern provinces of uh, Basra, of uh, Nasiriyah and Amara. But it doesn't mean that they have managed. I mean, their alliance, surely, their alliance with the Tayyar Madani, the civil movement, did help them to increase the size of their following, but in a very sort of marginal way, I would say. And they benefited from the collapse of the major political establishment, I would say. Loloba al-Rashid is a co-director of the Program on Civil-Military Relations in Arab States, at the Carnegie Middle East Center. She has been conducting research on Iraq and the Gulf region for the past 20 years. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Sadr city used to be a strong it's communist party base. This is where the communist party was recruiting a lot of cadres. And they had massive support within the Sadr city. It was an Iraqi Communist Party stronghold in the 1970s, and it gradually turned to Islamist movements. It turned to the Dawa Party, to the Islamic Cold Party in the late 1970s. But this was always an area of radicalization in terms of social and economic demands. These were people excluded people excluded from the system, people at the margins of Iraqi society and economy, and therefore they were desperate for for any political movement that would put forward their grievances and their concerns. So they they had always had a, I would say, a conflictual relationship to the Iraqi state and to Iraqi society because these are people who came from rural areas in in southern Iraq. Most of them hail from southern Iraq. They were living at the margin of the city of Baghdad or of Basra, and they were perceived as dangerous by uh, Baghdad inhabitants. And they would work in Baghdad and returned to their city in the evening. Some of them benefited from, I would say, social uh, upward mobilization, which took place in the 1970s uh, because of the extension of the school system, because of uh, some kind of democratization of access to uh, higher education, because of access to uh, civil service employment. But the bulk remained in a very vulnerable economic and social situation and ready for any kind of radical mobilization against the system. In their public discourse during the election campaign, the main contenders attempted to distance themselves from the sectarian politics and discourse that was institutionalized after the 2003 U.S.-British invasion and occupation of Iraq. Arguably, these political parties themselves had benefited from this institutionalization of sectarian politics. Can you talk about this approach to campaigning? Is this a genuine attempt on the part of these politicians and their parties to transcend sectarianism, or it's merely a response to the Iraqi public who has no appetite for sectarian politics? I think, yeah, in general, Iraqis, whether Sunni or Shia, Uh, have lost their appetite for sectarian politics. The rise and subsequent destruction of ISIS cost them a lot. They have witnessed several episodes of sectarian infighting. There was 2006-2007 of sectarian fightings and killings in the streets of Baghdad. So I think Iraqis in general have lost their appetite for sectarianism and sectarian politics. Sectarianism cannot be used anymore as the sole political resource or sold political legitimacy anymore. Iraqis want their politicians to deliver in terms of governance and in terms of provision of goods. The simple defense of the sectarian identity doesn't pay anymore. They want to see a concrete change of the system. But it doesn't mean that sectarianism has disappeared in Iraqi society. Of course, identity politics hasn't disappeared. But for the time being, it is perceived as as an obstacle to good governance, as an obstacle to the reconstruction of the state and to the reconstruction of the economy. And it has lost some of its appeal just simply because the Shiites are not anymore fearing for for their uh, hegemony in Iraq. They have clearly established their uh, hegemony. And the recent elections have proved that basically today the real issue is who among the Shias will rule Iraq and impose its definition of 
Iraqi statehood and nationhood. And it's not anymore about what are we going to do with the Sunnis or are the Sunnis happy with their status in uh, post-Ba'thi Iraq? It's not anymore about that. And as far as the, the Kurds are concerned, the catastrophic consequences of their failed referendum in September have pushed them now towards a more sort of pragmatic and sort of minimalist approach. They are negotiating with Baghdad to improve the terms of their relationship with Baghdad, and they are not anymore putting forward the claim of independence. So they have become more realistic about their potential for, for statehood. Uh, so basically, the Shia have won not only the fight against terrorism, against ISIS, but they have also won against the Kurds, who are today willing to compromise and to lower the level of their claims vis-à-vis Baghdad. So basically, Shiite hegemony is not anymore at stake, and therefore there's no need for the majority of Iraqis to, to put forward their religious or sectarian identity. They do not enter politics today as Shia, not anymore, because there's no need for it. They enter politics today as citizens who are angry at the dire situation of their economy, at the massive rampant corruption of their politicians, and who want the system to be radically transformed or reformed. You mentioned popular mobilization forces. The number of these militia is not clear. It's estimated anywhere upward of 100,000. There have been complaints against these popular mobilization forces, and they they have been reported to be involved in extrajudicial killings and abuse and theft or destruction of property in areas where they were fighting ISIS, Islamic State. During the election, these groups formed a bloc called Fatah. Conquest. What came to be known as the PMF, or Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq, is a group of armed Shiite militias, mainly Shiite militias, formed in the aftermath of the seizure of Mosul by ISIS. It was legitimized by a religious fatwa by Ayatollah al-Sistani, the highest religious Shiite authority in Iraq, who asked the Iraqi to take, to take up arms to fight the threat posed by Daesh and to protect the sacred Shiite shrines, religious shrines in Iraq. This mobilization was triggered by a religious fatwa. Some of the militias who came to be known under the umbrella of the PMF existed before Daesh, before ISIS and before the religious fatwa. Some of them were created after the fatwa. So basically, at some point, it assembled more than 120,000 fighters. They played an important role in the fight against ISIS. They were quite crucial in the liberation of the areas surrounding Baghdad, particularly. They fought each all the battles against ISIS. And they did participate in the liberation of Mosul. So they have a very strong legitimacy today. And they, through the last parliamentary elections, those PMF groups entered politics. They converted their popularity, their legitimacy as protectors of Iraq against terrorism into a political parliamentarian bloc that is called the Al-Fatah, or the Conquest Coalition, which groups all the leaders of the major Shiite 
militias who, uh, which fought the battle against uh, ISIS. Muqtada Sadr himself is a product of this uh, militia phenomenon because he immediately created a militia after 2003 that was known as uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi or al-Mahdi army. But Muqtada chose not to be part of the PMF. His militia didn't participate directly in the fight against ISIS and chose to concentrate its presence in Baghdad and in uh, Samarra. Samarra is a religious uh, shrine north of Baghdad. He was critical of the Iranian of the Iranian role in the formation of the PMF because most of the militias under the PMF label have very close links to Iran, to Iranian revolutionary guards. Uh, some of them were uh, trained in Iran and they liaise with the Iranian military. So Muqtada chose not to be part of it out of his Iraqi nationalist stand. In 2016, the Iraqi parliament passed a bill recognizing the Shia militia fighters, the popular mobilization forces, as a government entity operating alongside the military. Presumably, they are under Prime Minister Abadi's command, and these militiamen are receiving salaries and pensions that mirror those of the military and the police. They are presumably integrated into the state machinery or the state institutions, but they seem to want to have more of an autonomous role. Do they want a structure similar to the Revolutionary Guards in Iran, with more authority, with extensive economic interest? What is the end game for these groups? First of all, the PMF, Popular Mobilization Forces, do not form a, a coherent group, I would say. You have dozens of, of uh, militias that are different in size and strength and discipline. Some of them are... Um, the equivalent of a professional uh, army division. Others are just a group of young men with no real military skills. And they do not share, I would say, the same vision of Iraq. It is a heterogeneous group. And of course, as you said, I mean, they are only nominally and theoretically under the uh, command of the prime minister. They have retained their own separate chain of command and they have a very ambiguous relationship to the state. It is a paramilitary group which receives its budget, salary, pensions from the state, but at the same time, which is very keen on keeping its autonomy, its independence from the state and from the legitimate representatives of state authority. And at the same time, the state, the Iraqi state, needed them to face the threat posed by uh, ISIS. At some point, an alliance out of necessity, and the Iraqi government or the prime minister, Abadi, tried to um, sort of bring them under the control of the state and under the control of the central government by passing this law, which you referred to in 2016, which recognized them, which gave them a legal status. Uh, before that, they only had a religious status, that is the religious fatwa by uh, Ayatollah Sistani. But in 2000, end of 2016, the Iraqi parliamentary adopts a law which turned them into a legitimate body of the state, theoretically under the command of the supreme commander of armed forces in Iraq, that is the prime minister. But so far, they have only obeyed their commanders and their commanders. They do not come from the state apparatus. They are separate. But... What is interesting about the, the PMF is that what they really want is to be part of the political establishment. They want to be recognized as legitimate MPs, as legitimate ministers and statesmen. This is what the 2018 elections are about. It's about the entry into politics of all militia men, including the Sadrists. For, for me, they are very much similar. I mean, most of the popular mobilization leaders 
were themselves at some point 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, part of the Sadrist movement. They were part of the followers of Ayatollah Muhammad al-Sadiq al-Sadr, who was assassinated by Saddam's regime in, uh, in 1999. They were Muqtada's comrades. Some of them were Muqtada's closest aides and advisors. But they split from the Sadrist movement. They became autonomous. They created their own militia. They were supported in this by the Iranians. So basically what you had, a proliferation of armed groups of entrepreneurs who wanted to enter politics, who wanted to be part of the establishment and who wanted to be part of this clientelistic and patronage system, who wanted to reap the benefits, profits of the system, who want to become politicians and who wanted to enrich themselves. So this is what's, what it is about. And again, as I said, there's an intense competition going on among Shia groups, Shia leaders, Shia politicians for the control of the state and the control of the state, of state's resources, basically. Hence the fragmentation that you mentioned. Actually. Hence the fragmentation, hence the proliferation of armed groups hmm. and this sort of dissonance. But again, as I said, they all at some point, Muqtada Sadr and the PMF, they come from the same sort of ideological background. That is the intense politicization of Shiite identity in the 1990s and the fight against the Ba'athi regime. And after that, the fight against the occupation, the American and British occupation. This is their core ideological framework. Of course, they have over the last 15 years evolved. They have changed their vision of Iraq. And a line seems to be separating those who tend to think that the Iranian revolution, the Iranian Islamic Republic provides a good model of governance for Iraq and those who think that Iraq should explore its own specificity, its own brand of Shiism and that Iraq is, is an Arab country which needs to come to terms with its immediate regional environment, which needs to reconcile itself with its neighbors, particularly the Gulf countries starting with Saudi Arabia, and this, this is a position that is defended by Muqtada al-Sadr. The other position is basically the position by uh, popular mobilization forces, Mr. Amiri and Mr. Maliki. They are uh, closer to the Iranian model. Yes, they are closer to the Iranian model, but I think it would be too simplistic to just consider them them. as simple Iranian proxies or agents of Iran in Iraq. It's much more complicated than that. Someone like Hadi al-Amiri, who heads the most important militia or organization, armed organization within the PMF, that is the Badr organization, it is the most important in terms of military strength and capabilities. Someone like Hadi al-Amiri, who was an exiled, who left Iraq in the late 1970s, who fought the Iran-Iraq war alongside the Iranian troops, who is very much the product of the Iranian revolution and the Iranian Islamic Republic. Now he has good relationship with with major uh, Western embassies in Baghdad. He is trying to uh, present himself as someone capable of distancing himself from Iran. Although ideologically he comes from the same background, but also he, he has to put this Iraqi nationalist or Iraqi specificity uh, forward if he wants to be viewed as a, as a legitimate political leader by his not only his own followers, but, but also by, by Iraq's neighbors and by the United States. And let's talk about regional and international players and their role in Iraq. Let's start with the United States. What is Trump administration looking for in Iraq? It's not 
clear yet whether the Trump administration intends to escalate the confrontation with Iran on Iraqi soil or whether it will just Uh, satisfy itself with escalation in Syria or elsewhere in the region. My feeling is that both sides, the Iranians and the Trump administration, are quite prudent. They have both a lot to lose if things escalate, if their confrontation escalates in Iraq. The Americans can't afford to lose Iraq, can't afford to uh, let Iraq plunge into chaos and violence again. And the Iranians have also very much to lose if Iraq is plunged into violence. This is a country where they have been cultivating their links, their networks, their economic ties uh, since 2003. Their hegemony in Iraq is not something that they are willing to lose or to compromise. So therefore, they are quite reluctant to escalate tensions and the confrontation with the Americans on Iraqi soil. So I think both sides will agree on on some kind of condominium to rule Iraq and to administer violence and instability in Iraq instead of you know, using Iraq as an arena for the regional and international confrontation. As they did under Obama administration, right? There was a tacit agreement between them on who would be the next prime minister. Right. Yes. My feeling is that we are more likely to witness some kind of agreement or compromise, tacit compromise between the two sides on not letting Iraq turn into an arena for their confrontation. The stability of Iraq depends on consensus and compromise, not only among Iraqi themselves, I mean, I mean those, the winners of the election, but also among the regional superpowers and the international powers. And the stability of Iraq cannot be maintained uh, without some kind of compromise between the US and Iran and an acceptance of Iraq as it is by its regional neighbors, whether Saudi Arabia or Turkey. So, Lulawa, the Iranian regime was clearly supporting the militia groups under the umbrella of popular mobilization forces, as well as the former Prime Minister Maliki's bloc in these elections. Prior to the elections, Ali Akbar Velayati, chief advisor to Iran's supreme leader, had said, and this is a quote from him, Islamic awakening would not allow the return of communists and liberals to power, unquote. It appears that election results were not as favorable to the Iranian regime as it had desired. There are reports that Qasem Soleimani, a well-known leader of Iranian Revolutionary Guards, has been heavily lobbying different groups behind the scenes in the aftermath of the election. I don't think Iran has lost the elections, I mean the Iraqi elections, to uh, secularists and the atheists. If you consider that the, the group that has the closest uh, ties to Iran is the, the PMF uh, coalition, that is the, the conquest coalition, the conquest coalition came second to uh, Muqtada Sadr's coalition. The difference between the two coalitions in terms of parliamentary seats or in terms of votes is not significant. So I wouldn't say that Iranian influence over Iraqi politics has diminished. The Iranians in Iraq are not willing to take any risk. They are not willing to destabilize the system and to destabilize the status quo. And therefore, they will show a willingness to compromise on a candidate for the position of uh, prime minister who would also be acceptable to the Americans. And who would Uh, that be? The only candidate that is so far perceived as acceptable for both sides has been Prime Minister Abadi. The West and the United States were counting on um, a victory for Abadi's coalition. But um, unfortunately for them, this uh, didn't materialize. He came in the third position. But even if he lost the elections, he is still in a good position to be a compromise candidate. There's no lack of 
compromise candidates in Iraq. You will always find a politician who wasn't in the forefront who would be considered and viewed by all contenders, whether Iraqi or outsiders, as a compromise candidate. And the system can produce those candidates, those compromise candidates, who could be perceived as acceptable for the Americans and the Iranians. But I, I mean, I have no doubt that the system will produce another um, compromise candidate, whether it is going to be Abadi for a second term or an outsider, someone. There are names circulating among Iraqi uh, circles these days about potential compromise candidates. It has to be a shite with some veneer of Islamism, I would say, and religiosity. And it has to be someone who is perceived by the Americans as a moderate Shiite, as someone who is not completely infiltrated to Iranian uh, policies in the region. And there is no shortage of this kind of politicians within the Iraqi establishment. What about the Saudi regime? Muqtada al-Sadr traveled to Saudi Arabia and met with Saudi crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman last year. A lot has been said about that meeting and the, his relationship to Saudi Arabia. What is the Saudi regime looking for in Iraq? And what do the election results mean to Saudis? I would say that after 15 years of rejection of the consequences of the regime change that happened in Iraq in 2003, basically the Saudis not coming to terms with the fact that the Sunni Iraq ended in 2003. And now it is a Shiite Iraq that is being put in place under American auspices and Iranian active interferences, influence, hegemony. So basically what happened is that the Saudis have in the past tried to foster a strong Sunni leadership. They supported financially Sunni politicians, Sunni political groups, but this didn't produce a credible Sunni leadership. The Sunni landscape, political landscape remained fragmented, uh, divided, and this process ended up in allowing ISIS to dominate the Sunni landscape in 2013 and 14. So basically, the Saudis have changed their way they look at Iraq. They have accepted that now Iraq has become a Shiite state and that whether you like it or not, you have to live with a Shiite Iraq. And therefore, if you have to live with a Shiite Iraq, you'd better start developing contacts and ties with those who are going to be the dominant figures in this Shiite Iraq. And they reached the conclusion that the one who could be acceptable to them, the one who is stressing his Arab identity and his Arab culture, is Muqtada Sadr and some other Iraqi Shiite politicians. And therefore, they established contact with the Sunni politicians, not only Muqtada Sadr, but they also established contacts with Ammar al-Hakim, who, who is another Shiite clerk who heads a political party, who is among the major Shiite players. So the Saudis are trying to basically contain Iranian influence in Iraq by opening up to Shiite politicians, Shiite political groups, and trying to give them financial and economic incentives to side with Saudi Arabia instead of Iran. And therefore, Saudi Arabia pledged to invest a lot in southern Iraq. This is where you have the bulk of the, of the Shia population is in the south of the country. So Saudi Arabia pledged to invest a lot in the health sector, in the electricity sector, in the economy, for the sake of appealing to the Shiites of Iraq, who are very much traumatized by Takfiris and Wahhabis who, who entered their country after 2003 to fight them, to fight the Shia Rawafid, the Rafida, 
So Saudi Arabia is trying to turn the page on this chapter of animosity between the Sunni world and Iraqi society. They are trying to do this through economic incentives and financial in- incentives. T- turning this to an Arab-Persian discourse as opposed to a Shiite-Sunni. Right, absolutely, to an, uh, instead of a Sunni-Shiite divide. So we are going back to 1980s and during the war between Iran and Iraq. That's how the discourse was formed at that time. It wasn't Shiite-Sunni confrontation. Absolutely. It was Persian-Arab confrontation. Absolutely. I think that no one can afford to destabilize Iraq uh, once again. This would have a, a devastating spillover effect on Saudi Arabia's own internal stability. So rather, I would say that it is an attempt to have some kind of leverage on Iraqi politics uh, instead of using Iraq and the Iraqis as tools in their confrontation with, with Iran. There is going to be quite a bit of horse trading now in order to form a new government. Even the winner of this election cannot form a government on their own. In fact, they have to reach out to a whole bunch of different blocks. And we talked about the fragmentations within what used to be a Shia bloc and the fragmentation within the Kurdish groups in the aftermath of uh, the attempt to declare autonomy for Kurdistan a few months ago. What kind of alliances can we expect and in terms of forming a government? And what does that mean for the future of Iraq? Well, you're right. The Kurdish uh, landscape is no different from its Arab counterpart. It is fragmented, it is divided, but I would say that more or less the two main Kurdish parties, the KDP and the PUK, remain hegemonic, even if these elections uh, witnessed the emergence of small political groups, particularly young, uh, groups that speak for the for the young educated middle classes who are fed up with the with the corruption and nepotism of the two major uh, kurdish parties but this is not going to change the balance of power in kurdistan the next government will very much look the same as the previous one i.e. a juxtaposition of groups leaders factions who cannot agree on anything but dividing power and resources among themselves and keeping the statu quo. It remains to be seen whether Muqtada Sadr can or is really willing to change the rules of the game, playing on his immense popularity, on his capacity to mobilize the streets and to send his followers to storm again the green zone or to fight in the streets. Will Muqtada Sadr accept to be the kingmaker and eventually control the most important portfolios within the next government and agree on maintaining the status quo or will he really want to change the rules of the game and therefore open, I would say, another chapter of political violence, this time among Shia themselves. Lolowa al-Rashid is a co-director of the Program on Civil-Military Relations in Arab states at the Carnegie Middle East Center. She has been conducting research on Iraq and the Gulf region for the past 20 years. Shahram Agamir spoke with her from Beirut. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, 
Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.